you have your Bibles uh, with you, uh, won't you turn over with me to the Gospel of John? We'll continue our study in the Gospel of John, chapter number 11. A little over a year ago, we started the Gospel, uh, this Gospel study, and I was not sure how long this would take. We've taken quite a few breaks, and uh, but um, it has been a good, enriching study for me, I hope for you as well. Uh, we're going to try to finish chapter 11 today, beginning in verse number 45, John 11, verse 45. It's a nice sound of pages turning, isn't it? Anyway, I'm not against the other stuff either, so I don't think that. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did, speaking of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him, verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." One of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand. That's, a, that's a, I, Back in those days equivalent, you ain't got a sense of what's going on. Uh, you don't have an understanding of the times. That's Caiaphas' rebuke to the Sanhedrin. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And we'll pick up the reading uh, of that a little bit more in a moment. Uh, we are reminded oftentimes that things are not always what they appear to be. Uh, sometimes we see something uh, going on and we are not privy to all the things behind the scenes, the endless meetings and planning and, and all of the practice or, or putting all the pieces in place. And sometimes with that, we tend to think everything runs kind of just haphazardly or, or on the spur of the moment. Uh, but that's just not true. There are many things that, that go on in this life that are well-planned, anticipated. A lot of thought and energy and effort have been put into the preparation of it. Well, the crucifixion is one of those things. We tend to think Jesus being carried away in the middle of the night in this chaotic trial that he went through, uh, several meetings with this person, that person being pushed into the front of the line to be executed that very day before the Passover. We, we tend to think of it as a chaotic scene of, of get, it, get going while the going's good, so to speak. But what the Bible tells us is that it was well planned out. It was an outworking of planning. And some of us, we have a, an aversion to planning, but nevertheless, with the crucifixion, it was thought through on many different levels and, and for two different reasons. Here in the text, we see an earthly plot to kill Jesus, to put an end to him and, and just kind of snuff him out by the leaders. He was rejected, a man of sorrows, the Bible tells us, he was rejected by the Jews. Uh, But on a whole nother level, we could say it that way, or from a heavenly perspective, a much older plan for a greater purpose was being carried out. Now, all of this is dealing on the aftermath or the ripple of 
um, the ripples of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And you and I would want to ponder upon that and, and try to, to figure out what's going on and, and rejoice a little bit that Lazarus was dead and now he's raised from the dead. But the text just says, Jesus says to him, unbind him and let him go. And that's it. Different story. There's a change in events here. No more about Lazarus. No more about what happened, what he saw, or, or, or um, any of those things like that that we would tend to ponder on. The, it comes back to the whole purpose of this. How was Jesus received by this? How did the world respond to this great miracle that Jesus did? In fact, we find that in two ways in our first part of it is 45 and 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, now many of the Jews were the Jews that saw the miracle. They had been weeping with Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus raised from the dead. Jesus come out and, and all of the evidence pointed to the fact that God sent this man into the world undeniable. This must be the Messiah. Nobody can do what this man did. Naturally would be the right response. He's the person we've been looking for. Now, we rejoice in this. That's the very reason John wrote this gospel. So you and I, after reading it and sitting down, the Spirit of God working in our lives, might say, yes, this is Him. This is, this is the Son of God. This is the promised one. This is the Good Shepherd. Some believed in Him, and in believing in Him, uh, they, they, they listened, they, they followed after Him. But there were others. Verse number 46 but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. You always have a tattletale, don't you? Just run off and tell people. And we don't know exactly what the motivation is behind them. We do know the motivation of the Pharisees. But, but they went to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were closer to the common people in Jesus' day. The, the priestly caste, um, they were far removed. They were the aristocrats, the well-to-do, the influential uh, and and so so they were far removed from the people of the day. The more common approach would be go to the Pharisees. They were they were a minority in the Sanhedrin, but yet they they still represented basically the Judaism of the common person. So they go to the Pharisees and they tell them what had happened. Now you would expect this religious group to be like, Are you kidding me? Lazarus, who died, and, and we sent a group of mourners to him, is now alive. Are, are you serious? Is not this the Messiah? Isn't what this what the Bible promised, what we've been looking for? But that is not what we see in the text, is it? In fact, they should have thought that what we have been reading about in the Old Testament is in front of our very eyes. The power of God demonstrated through Elijah and Elisha and Moses and all of them is it's like it's on steroids here with this man Jesus. We've we've only read about stuff like this. We've never seen it with our own eyes. We, we're kind of like that today, right? We, we only read about stuff like this. We don't see it with our own eyes. And, and so there they were seeing it. One scholar said that, that so, uh, so broad was Jesus' ministry against disease and demon possession that it almost uh, ran out sickness in Jerusalem. I don't know if that's the case or not. But, but people were being healed everywhere he went. But in response to this, in response to the fact that Jesus lived, they, they just said we need to have an emergency session. And the reason is because Jesus is a problem. Jesus is a problem. 
That's the first thing I want us to notice this morning. His popularity is growing and Jesus is a problem. Notice verse number 47 and following down to verse number 51. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he said this, uh, not... He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And so here you have the emergency session of the Sanhedrin. That's a mouthful, isn't it? That's the word that you get here in verse number 47 of the council. It just simply means the Sanhedrin. These were the political leaders of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. There were 70 of them, 71 counting the high priest, the, the majority... Uh, shareholders in this group of men were uh, part of the priestly caste or the chief priest, and they would have been related to the high priest family. Very political movement. They were considered Sadducees. You may have heard that when you were in children's church. They were sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection or the afterlife, so they were sad, you see. Just making sure you're still awake. Uh, they rejected much of the traditions of the Pharisees. They, they were, like I said, they were the political uh, leaders of the day. They were very influential, and they held the majority of the power. Not, not of the people representation, but of the power nonetheless. And so you had the Sadducees, and you had the Pharisees, which is a smaller group, and we've seen those before. they very zealous, religious. We might call them the conservative group just to use a more modern term, uh, who loved the traditions of the fathers, and they had nothing in common except a common enemy and a common problem. And what is the problem? Well, the problem was Jesus. He's the problem. The fact that Jesus is doing all these miracles and all these signs and And this idea that everyone will believe in him or is going after them, which is a little bit of hyperbole. We know everyone's not believing in him because here's a group of 70 men gathered together plotting to put him to death. But for the large part, the the masses, the uneducated and the common folk, we might say, they're, they're flocking towards him because it's undeniable that what Jesus is doing is raising people from the dead. He's healing people. He's doing all these signs. And we've got to do something about this. Now, the NIV and New American Standard has a tone in it of um, the question they ask here. Uh, in verse number 47, really of what are we going to do now because what we've been doing hasn't been working. Um, so a New American Standard says, what are we doing? Or the NIV says, what are we accomplishing? Basically trying to note that we have been working, trying to, to put down this guy's ministry and do away with what God is doing through him, but we have been unsuccessful. I'm not sure if it was... Um, Whitfield, who said, you are uh, invincible until God is through with you. I think that's a good statement. So is the ministry of Jesus and he himself. Uh, Well, you know, the Pharisees have tried to publicly shame him. 
I mean, all through the Gospels, you have this encounter where they're coming to him, asking these ridiculous, silly questions, trying to, to make him say something false or trip him up or bring him to public shame where everyone might have the conversation. Well, he's just, he, 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 he's a false teacher or whatever the case may be. But time and time again, they have failed to do anything about him and his ministry. And you can find that in Matthew twenty-two fifteen. So this, this has to be a second meeting because they met, Pharisees met and took counsel how they might entangle him in Matthew twenty-two fifteen. And, and now they're, they're saying it's not working. We can't do anything with this Jesus. And they acknowledge that he performed many signs and everyone will believe in him if he comes. And the problem with that is, and the fear of that is, if... Everyone believes him. What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to this nation? What's going to happen to the temple? It reminds me of that statement in the New Testament. that says something to the equivalent of trying to save ourselves. We end up finding ourselves condemned. Now, that's a rough translation of something Jesus said. But nevertheless, that's exactly what is happening to these people. They're trying to save themselves, trying to save the status quo of the day, trying to to not cause any ripples against Rome. It was a real viable threat. Rome was a a powerhouse of the day. They actually controlled the nation. And and any uprise king, messianic figure, would be put out and the nation itself would suffer greatly, maybe even losing the temple Uh, and all of Jerusalem with it. There's a fear. If all of this happens the way it's happening, we're not going to like the outcome of this. It reminded me of sometimes the irrationalness that we have in our sinful state. I was working in a John Deere um, construction equipment shop. We worked on construction, sold it, and, and... So I was a mechanic, I was working with a gentleman uh, for a couple of years, three years, I think, something to that effect, and and I had been witnessing to him, inviting him to church, come to church, we talked about Jesus, we talked about the gospel, we talked about all sorts of things, and he kept telling me, if I come to church, the building will fall down on me. That's a big ego, by the way. I can just tell you, some of you are a lot worse than he was, I think, in your past. I tried to assure him the church has seen far worse, more challenges than you could ever present before God uh, and the building code. He thought very highly of himself, but it come down to this fact, and he told me this, and I thought it, it sort of reminded me of this Pharisee's point of view. If all of this is true, he said, there's just things in my life I don't want to change. I said, there it is, isn't it? If it's true, if it continues on, if this is God's program, if this is agenda, I don't like where it's going because I don't like how it's going to press against me. And maybe you have somebody like that in your life. Maybe you've been that way before. I love my sin too much. Now, we wouldn't say that, would we? Of course, he did name a few of his sins that he liked doing so much, and he felt like God would be like, no, uh, put those down. uh, But nevertheless, it's that fear of loss. The very same thing that these guys are motivated from. If, if he is the, the, uh, uh, set up as the Messiah, the King of Israel, Rome will notice it and he'll come and take away both our place. And maybe this is the temple, as most scholars suggest. Uh, or maybe it's their own place. And he will destroy our nation. 
if he was the Messiah, which he was the Messiah, and they embraced him as the Messiah, don't you think God could take care of Rome? How many of you believe that? Nebuchadnezzar was a very powerful figure, and he's out eating grass like a wild animal. You think Rome is any threat to God? And yet that fear and that trying to deal with that fear with human resources and problems and unbelief or against God brings about this great conspiracy because that's what this is. It's really a fleshing out of unbelief that at the end of the day, we don't want God's way, we'll do things our way. And in fact, so much so that if God intervenes or interjects himself as he had with sending the Messiah, we'll just put him to death too. Here's a, here's a microscope vision of a, of a council gathering together. And we're, we're, we're like sitting in the backside of it, getting the, the cliff notes of what went on. And part of the problem was Jesus was a problem. He, he, what kind of problem was he? Well, he went around doing good. He healed people. He preached the gospel and, and told, taught people about who God was. He, he cast out demons. He did all, fed people food. And all of this was a threat to those who were in leadership. And so the conclusion of this comes to uh, this meeting, all the argument back and forth. We're not given verse number 49. We see the high priest stepping up Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas served 18 years, which is a testimony to his his stickability or his, uh, his ability to stay at it, uh, which took a lot of political savviness. Uh, the high priest job was what it was. It was a job as a political office, very much detached from uh, the Old Testament the way it was meant to be. Rome was in charge, and if they didn't like the guy who was high priest, guess what they did? They fired him and got somebody else they liked. They don't mind you governing yourself as long as those who govern you are, are compliable and, and, and like Rome, or at least will go along with the program. No wonder that the Sadducees were in the majority of leadership. Caiaphas served 18 years from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. He and Pilate was sacked together at the same time. Rome come in, you're fired and you're fired. By the way, don't worry about packing your stuff up. You won't need it. Uh, and so you get how that, that goes. So he stands up in this meeting. After everyone's beating around the bush, what are we going to do? Complain? You ever been in a meeting like that, by the way? You're just sorting out all the problems, and he stands up with a solution. And what is the solution? The best thing for our country. The best thing for the way and what we fought for to have the, the independence and the liberties we got is kill Jesus. No discussion was he worthy of it. No thought about the good that he did. No question about the theological nature of his claims or any of those things. There's no doubt of his miracles. Uh, they will even plot to put Lazarus to death because of this as well. Uh, no question about any of that. The, the solution is a political, earthly solution. That is, put Jesus to death and you won't have to worry about Rome coming in and sacking the city. In fact, what we find is because they did put Jesus to death, God judged Jerusalem and the Israel nation and the temple was destroyed in AD 70 along with the Jews being scattered to the ends of the earth. Isn't that fascinating to see in verse number 53? They made plans to put him to death. 
They plotted. They, they, they moved their agenda forward. They even pressed word to anybody who sees Jesus, let the leadership know because he's going to be arrested and they will kill him. There's no discussion. Every trial beyond this point is a formality. This is the moment where they have tried him and condemned him without him being there. But I want you to notice, secondly, not only emergency meeting, the conclusion of that, I want you to notice, secondly, the sovereignty of God in this. Is it just the fact that evil men plot and plan? That the world just does what it does, and they make their plans that they make, and God's agenda is like held captive by human ingenuity. Notice how John brings this out. Verse 49, it says, Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Now, that year just simply is a reference to the year that Jesus was condemned and put to death. He says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, John, John wants us to understand. He did not say this of his own accord. He spoke better than he knew. He he is asserting, and the Bible asserts, he had a plan, and he had an agenda, and he had an intent to carry out, along with the rest of the Sanhedrin, but above that, and and through that, and with that, God had a different plan and, and a different purpose. And yet, the very words he says are so telling to us. What I want you to see, at least as we come to understand this death of Christ, and is that God is in control. God is sovereign. Peter in his first public sermon reminded us of that as he pinpointed men of Israel. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. You know what he did. He says at the end of that verse, he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You put him to death. Now, how would you like that for your first sermon? I think my first sermon was five minutes on baptism, and I don't even know what passage I was in. It's embarrassing. I should have saw the writing on the wall. I don't know. His first sermon, he stands up, you're guilty, you killed him. But that's couched after his statement, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, who was really in control. They did what they wanted to accomplish the ends in which they wanted to accomplish, but God was trying to accomplish and did accomplish something much greater, carrying out his plan through their wicked desires. It's the sovereignty, affirming the sovereignty of God in this whole thing. And we need a doctrine like that in our day. One, because it's biblical, okay? But secondly... Because you and I are so easily shaken by what appears to be one thing or another. Uh, The prosperity of the wicked or the violence and abuse that runs its course in society. We tend to think things are out of control. And even the painful and difficult things we face in our life, we we tend to wonder, where in the world is God? And yet, above them all, we may not be able to explain every detail uh, of how and why, but above them all, we come back to acknowledge that God is, the Bible tells us that God is what? He's sovereign. He's in control. 
And God's plan involved, included the suffering of Jesus Christ. He allowed his son to be beaten, uh, to be mutilated, abused, tortured by wicked, rebellious, hateful, gross men. To be spat upon, his beard plucked out. And I say that for our sakes this morning... Because his motivation to allow him to endure all that he endured was not out of, of meanness or cruelty or bitterness. Neither towards his son or his creation. Do you believe that? He allowed all these things to go through out of his love. His love for his son, which you and I could not fathom loving from eternity past In a a way and in a measure you and I could not comprehend. And his love for us. All of this as an outflowing of his love. The son will be vindicated, universally exalted over everything. Rebels will be redeemed. All of this motivated out of his love. And can I say this morning, there's some of you here this day or without a spouse. Whether you're dealing with singleness whether you're dealing with the passing of a spouse and as a widow, widower, and some of you struggling um, without children, some of you with children and dealing with the heartbreak of their rejection of you or them walking away from the faith or whatever it is, some of you are facing divided homes and, and the weight and the consequences of all that, sickness, disabilities, all of these things that come in our life. And we have to ask ourselves the question, is God sovereign? And I want to assure you this morning, these things do not come into our lives by a cruel God. Or a God who's wringing his hands, wondering how in the world it happened. Wondering what went wrong. But according to his infinite wisdom and his love for us, do we find God's work perfecting us. And it is true on one level, the world and hardships and people and pain and suffering is all meant for evil and to destroy and to, to hurt and, and, and to crush under the weight of it all. But yet God on a whole nother level has something better and greater in mind, a higher purpose. And you can rest in his promises when you don't see that purpose. You believe that? Christ, even as the wicked plot against him to carry out the very plan, the definite plan of God, God is going to use for a greater purpose. And it is his love for the Son. And the same thing is true in our lives. As God works, we deal with the pain and the providences that come into our lives that God is good. And all that he brings into our lives is out of his love for us. If he loved you so much that he would give his only begotten Son to redeem you, Don't you think that love would continue? Don't you think that 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 should not speak? Well, it should speak volumes to us in the midst of difficulty and suffering. It should push against the doubt and the deceit and the the things that we face when when the devil and the world and others are telling us that, that you've sinned against God or he's mad at you or all the other stuff that we tend to take in and say, no, look to the cross. It is the declaration of his love for us. It's the declaration of his sovereignty. And we too can trust our souls to him to exalt us in due time.
not only the sovereignty of God, but let me bring out the great reality here in verse 50 through 52, the substitution of our Savior. Again, we said Caiaphas has said uh, more than he knew. His idea was how are we going to save the nation? How, what are we going to do with this problem? Well, if we kill Jesus, then the Romans won't come. There's no king and, and we'll be just fine. So in that way, and, and actually the language is used here, Caiaphas' language is used here of, of a religious scapegoat or, or kind of a, a, uh, uh, something of, of that effect. All of it was an earthly plan. All it was sinful passions. And yet, what we find here is God's plan from the very beginning was to send his son into the world to crush the head of a serpent and he himself would be bruised. In fact, we see this most clearly in Isaiah 53 and and I'll just read verse number 8 for you. The whole chapter is worth uh, visiting in your own time in preparation for tonight and communion. But, but notice what he says in verse number 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Why did he die? Why are they plotting here to put him to death? It isn't because he's a good man necessarily. It isn't because of their hatred for him. It is because he will stand in someone else's place. That's the idea of substitutionary atonement. We should look at the cross through the lens of an ought to. And that is we ought to have been the ones on it. You and I are the guilty ones. You and I have sinned against God and we have violated His law. Day and night we've rejected our neighbors. We ought to have been the ones that have been crucified by our neighbors and abandoned by God on the cross. That's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? The whole outcome of our sinful disposition against Him. We are at great need, not of a push on a swing so we can live a better life. We have sinned and God is just and holy and righteous. He will not be bribed or he will not be conned or swindled into doing something other than according to his own nature. And that's the very trouble for us. So Jesus is offered up and given to the plots of these sinful men, not because they plan so well, but because God has planned so well in redeeming his people. We should look at the cross in that way. That it should have been our sins. He was condemned and he was innocent. Even Pilate in his official declaration, I find no fault in this man. He said more than he knew. If he would only have known what true righteousness and purity and goodness and and purpose in being the second Adam was, he he would have fell down in his face before him. And yet in that declaration, I find no fault for him. Innocent of this whole event, he's condemned beaten and abused and all the things that he went through so that you might be set free. So you, you who are guilty, and you could just run through the Ten Commandments and all the violations of them that we've all committed in one way or another. And the Bible says if you've broken one of these, you've broken all of them. And he's saying to the guilty and to those who should have been nailed, those who should have endured this great, this great fate as Jesus endured He has set us free. They call this that great exchange. His righteousness given to me. And my guilt and my sin given over to him. 
Do you know that experience? That's what the gospel gives to us when it says forgiven. Uh, It is that fact that in that declaration of forgiven and coming to Christ for the forgiveness of sin, he, he clothes us, as it were, with his own garment of righteousness. Not a, not a kind of fanciful idea of righteousness, but a, a true, proven 33 and a half years of always obeying the Father, always living according to God's law and loving his neighbor, a proven, tried righteousness, an actual righteousness. He clothes us in that garment so that none of our guilt or our sin or our shame will ever be seen again. Not only covering our nakedness and our exposure and our guilt He takes upon himself the filth and the rags of our own deeds and efforts and and lawlessness. I did ironwork for many years. And every now and then we would do ironworks. Basically we build buildings, iron steel structure, and then they come in and finish it all out. In case you're wondering what that is. I don't build cool stuff like fences. But we did a Cold mine shutdown. I don't know if you've ever been to a cold mine. They're uh, fascinating. They're fun because no one cares um, what you do there. But they're the most filthiest places on earth. Basically, when you get done, you just want to burn your clothes. You, you, you try to endure wearing them all weekend throughout the whole shutdown. So when you're done, you can put a pile in the floor and have an offering to the dirt because it is filthy. Now, I know that may not shed very much light to the fact of what we're saying here. But what I'm saying is in this great exchange, Jesus took on that filth, the garb of our guiltiness, clothed himself in that and went straight to the cross to bear the weight of what you and I could not bear. He treated guilty in our place, in the place of, on the account of someone else so that you and I may be set free and so that we might receive that forgiveness. That is the idea of his atonement, to put away the wrath. But notice what he says here. Not only is it better for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. He said this not of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Probably the best thing, truest thing he's ever said for sure. I shouldn't know. You get it. But 52. But not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God all who are scattered abroad. Theologians refer to this as a particular purpose of Jesus' death or atonement. That it is not aimless, that he was just mutilated and, and treated the way he did, kind of happenstancely, and, and, and all of it may work out in the end, but he died for a particular purpose, for a particular people, for an end. And he says this, for the nation of the Jews, and there's debate on that, we don't have time to go into that, but basically is this the nation and maybe the, the revival that we see mentioned about the Jews, Jewish nation later on, eschatologically. You can work that out um, in your own time. But he says, not for the Jews only, that's the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Why did Jesus die? To bring in his children. Those scattered among the nation whom the Father has given to him out of every tongue, tribe, and, 
and people group. Those whom he has called and given to the Son. Those whom he has purposed and uh, from eternity past. And those whom Jesus is now and will go to the cross and give his life for. You see, Jesus did not die theoretically for a blob of sin. But if you're saved this morning, we're meant to look at the death of Christ and his atonement as dying for your sin. The very sin that you were in bondage to and caught up in. For the things that captured you and overwhelmed you and, and held you bondage. Those sins, even the sins you commit now, day in, day out. That we're meant to look to the cross and say, he died for that. He paid the price for that. And for all the children of God throughout the generations, who are they? Well, John tells us in John 1, 12, doesn't he? All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. All who have heard the voice of the shepherd and follow him. Now, doesn't John, uh, Paul tell us that he was the chief of sinners? So that you and I might have courage to come and find forgiveness in him. I think that's what he's getting on with there when he's speaking to Timothy in 1 Timothy. That I'm chief and foremost of sinners so others might see the graciousness of God as he has for his enemies. And may be emboldened to come to him to find forgiveness of sin. And friends, if he can save the chief of them. And if he can add forgiveness, what encouragement it offers for you this morning if you don't know Jesus in the free pardon of sin to come to him and repent and believe and be saved. In fact, we, we're told elsewhere in the New Testament that as many as come to him, uh, they that come to him, he will in no wise cast out. He will not reject. Not one person ever come to Christ looking for forgiveness, turning from their sin. Has Jesus ever said, no, not you? Do you believe that? Not one person. Why do we share the gospel to the ends of the earth? Because that's true. Not one person who we've ever given the gospel to and and they come at at repentance and faith to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus ever said, no, not you. That's the offer extended to you here this morning if you don't know him. Now let me add a word here and just a word of application because we like application, right? How many of you like it? Yeah, I want to go into that. Let me just say this, church. There's a powerful application just in being reminded of what Jesus did. Just letting our thoughts come back to that reality. And that's what we'll do tonight in communion. We'll come and our minds will be set on the, on the fact of Jesus taking our place. Our substitution. Our righteousness. Uh, we receive from him our sin he receives from us and and all that he did for us so there's a powerful uh, application in knowing that and and remembering that but because i know we like practical things to go out and do something here's one go love your neighbor actually it wasn't in my list but that's a good one to start with let me just give you three things very quickly one repent and believe whole purpose of this letter is so that you might repent and believe. 
And as a Christian, we continue to do that, don't we? Turning away from the world and turn away from our sins and we continue to, to trust and rest. It's a, it's a constant state of believing the gospel. Not getting saved all over again, but believing Christ, continuing, persevering. The second thing I would say is not only repent and believe, but rejoice and give thanks. If your sins are gone, if you've been forgiven, if you can face death and the prospect of dying with the assurance, a biblical assurance, not a feel-good assurance, but a, a biblical promise that your sins are forgiven, that, that you will, the minute you leave this life, will be in the presence of God, ought that not to be something to stir our hearts and affections and make us, render us thankful? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't go through difficulties and hardships and all that. I get that. Peter talks about that. But at the very heart, we should rejoice in the fact of his redeeming, saving work that he had taken our place so that we might be in his place when he comes again. The third thing I mentioned, and lastly, is this. Realign your obligations. Repent and believe. Rejoice and give thanks and realign your obligations. And Jesus died for the very sins that you and I walk in. The very things he's delivered us out of. That's why he died. You know that, right? He, he didn't die just, just theoretically. He died for, for those sins. Not to remain in them. Not to continue on or, or, or worse. Not to pick up other companions to those sins and add them into our life. The Bible teaches us in Romans 6 that that redeeming work of Christ has, has, has made it to where we ought not to. We should not. Let it not be that we continue living in sin. We're no longer obligated to that. It's not how we're to live this life, to let the passions of our flesh to rule us, wage war against the Spirit's work in us. You've got to realign your obligations. And some of you who name the name of Christ, who dabble in whether it's pornography or, or all the others, gossip or all the other stuff that tends to eat at you, fight against that with a holy passion and desire and see Christ crucified for those very sins that you indulge in. I would pray that it would bring a, a measure of conviction and resolve. I think we need more of that, like Daniel who resolved not to devile himself with the king's meat. Realign your obligations. That's a Romans 12, 1 and 2. Not to live that way, but to be obligated, living unto God. That once what we offered is our members, our, our desires, our passions, our hands, our efforts, was all self-serving and self-seeking. And now, because we are set free and forgiven, you and I can live in a way that pleases God. What do you think about that? Your life offered up as a thanksgiving sacrifice. All of you, because he gave all of himself for us, is to be lived out for him. Do you live that way, Christian? Is Romans 12, 1 and 2, is that, a, is, is that represent your life? He's basically saying, you see everything that God did for you in 11 chapters? Now, present your bodies, which is only reasonable unto him. To glorify Him. His life for yours and your life for Him. I wish that would be our desire and efforts as we come to think about the world which plots and the impending death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through this study in John. Well, bow with me for a word of prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, even so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see, to know, to remember, to reflect on the glory of the great cost of our redemption, the life of Jesus Christ for us, for us, in our place. Mm. What he faced will never be our lot in life. What he went through was to take away that which we had weighing on us. I pray if anyone here this morning dealing with that measure of guilt and grief that even today that they would lay it down at Jesus' feet. For this very reason, Jesus died on the cross. God, I pray for us as Christians as we reflect on this great truth. For me, that ought to give us that fresh vision of the cross. Not so that we can fall in self-pity, but so that we can rejoice in amazement that why in the world you'd do this and and look at the extent of what you did and and Lord let that be the fuel which helps us offer ourselves as a living sacrifice of praise to you in Jesus name amen